Bob Goldstone, editor of Current Directions in Psychological Science. Our guest today is Sam Gershman, associate professor of psychology at Harvard University. He is the author, together with Mina Chikara, of a forthcoming article entitled Social Structure Learning. Welcome, Sam. Thanks. So I think it might help our listeners to start things off concretely with you describing what is involved in the main experimental paradigm you describe in your article, the one in which you ask participants to guess what choice a fictional character might make. What happens in these experiments? So in this canonical experiment, it consists of two phases. Um, in the first phase, subjects learn about um, the preferences of a set of agents. And um, in the second phase, subjects are making um, predictions about those agent preferences uh, in the um, absence of identifying information about their about the, uh, the items that they're choosing between. So for example, um, in the first phase, you might be exposed to a set of movie preferences uh, for different agent, agents. Um, and on each trial, the subject would make predictions about um, an agent's movie preference and then get feedback about the agent's true preference. Um, and for those same movie preferences, the subjects are going to report their own, uh, sorry, the same movie items, the subjects are going to perform, um, report their own preferences. And then um, in, the, in, in this second phase where they get this mystery choice, they, they see two of the agents um, reporting preferences, um, one agent preferring one option, another agent preferring the other option, but critically they don't get to see the options themselves. So it's a kind of pure um, social information trial. And then subjects have to make a choice about which of those mystery options they prefer using only the social information. Um, now, I find it useful to think about uh, predictions from for this experimental paradigm, starting with uh, a very simple and intuitive model that I call the dyadic similarity model. Uh, and uh, the idea behind this model is that uh, what you do is you measure the preference overlap between your your actions, uh, your preferences, and your uh, and another agent's preferences. So you'd have um, pairwise similarities between yourself and all other agents. And then that pairwise similarity or preference overlap is going to dictate uh, who exerts more social influence on in you. So if um, you and I have um, more preference overlap compared to someone else, then you'd exert more social influence on me. And so I'd be more likely to follow your choice on the mystery choice trial than the other person's choice. Um, and uh, this experiment was actually motivated by um, the desire to test this, um, as well as an alternative theory, uh, which is not based on dyadic similarities. And the idea behind this uh, alternative social structure learning theory um, is that what you're doing when you learn about these agents' preferences is you're inferring um, the latent group membership of each agent uh, on the basis of their choices. So um, in, in, this, in this case, we only have information about, about choices. And, um, and so the grouping is going to be done entirely on the basis of choices. But the idea here in general is that you're clustering individuals in the same way that you might cluster objects um, based on their observed properties. Um, and the way that we set about testing that was 
unbeknownst to the subjects, we set things up so that the two agents they see on the race trial um, have equal preference overlap with the subject. So if you were uh, using the, the, the dyadic similarity model, you'd be indifferent between the two choices. But um, what we did is we introduced a third agent during the learning phase um, whose preferences overlapped more with the subject and one of the other agents. Uh, and the idea there was that that overlap would create a cluster where you're clustered with these two other agents. Um, and that's going to induce differential social influence on in the um, mystery choice trial, even in the absence of differential preference overlap. Um, because you, because by virtue of the fact that you've grouped yourself with these other agents, um, those agents are going to exert greater social influence on you. Right. And so how did the results come out? Did they favor that social structure theory? Yeah, so, so broadly speaking across a bunch of different experiments, we, we found that, um, that um, social influence is exerted in proportion to this putative uh, latent group membership. And we, we've done various kinds of uh, uh, versions of this experiment where we can move that third agent around, this third agent who doesn't appear in the mystery choice, but nonetheless influences this grouping process during the learning phase. And uh, we can make quantitative predictions with our, our model about how that's going to change the pattern of social influence. And, we, and we, do, we do see a correlation between the predicted patterns of um, social influence and the actual patterns of social influence. Great. So the sort of mental image that I'm getting is that when people hear about other people, they're sort of imagining overlaying different social categories that the people could be belonging to and including themselves. So in addition to explaining the results from that specific experimental paradigm, are there other advantages of adopting this idea of sort of overlaid social categories on how people make social inferences? Yeah, so th there's um, two somewhat independent reasons for thinking that this model is plausible. So one comes from other areas of cognitive psychology where these kinds of grouping processes have um, um, have been hypothesized. So uh, in particular, in unsupervised category learning, it's been thought for a long time that people do something like this, where they take their observations and they um, group them on the basis of shared properties. Um, and so actually, our, our mathematical models were taken directly out of that literature, uh, essentially applying the same ideas, but to uh, social grouping uh, and social influence. Um, now, within social psychology, there are a number of interesting places where this kind of social grouping process could come into play. Uh, so one thing that, that Mina Shikar and I are, have been very interested in recently is uh, thinking about the implications for uh, stereotype updating. Um, so one of the um, one of the uh, um, one one property of stereotype updating that's been known for a long time is this phenomenon of uh, subtyping. So the idea here is that if you observe a counter stereotypical exemplar, like let's say a female engineer, so women um, don't conform to the stereotype of engineers, um, and what happens in those situations often is that uh, 
people don't update their stereotypes of engineers. So you might think, all right, this is a counter stereotypical piece of information. So now I'm going to update my stereotype because it was wrong. Um, but instead, what people will often do is say this is an exception, basically. And, and there's some analogous ideas in the um, um, rule learning, concept learning literature where, where um, when people encounter exceptions to rules, they don't just throw out the rules, they, they um, construct models with rules and exceptions. And so this is a similar idea here, um, so that the exceptions kind of inoculate the rule from um, contradictory examples. Um, but if you get enough of these contradictory examples, then um, one thing you could do is just say, um, well, this is enough evidence that I should revise my rule. Um, but another thing you could do is, is construct um, a separate group. Um, and that group could actually exist, we think, at different levels of uh, hierarchy. So you could imagine that there's a, um, a, a subgroup of women that are like engineering women. Um, so they're, they share some properties with women, but they're, they also have some properties that um, um, don't adhere to the uh, stereotype of women as not being engineers. Um, but another possibility is that you could construct uh, um, a new category at a superordinate level, which doesn't share any of the properties um, with the original category. And so, so one of the things that we're very interested in is extending the kinds of modeling that we've done and uh, described in this paper um, to hierarchies of categories, where we think that's, that's very relevant for social cognition. Great, great. So your social structure theory is an example of a, a Bayesian approach to inference. Bayesian accounts are often taken to be accounts for what an ideal rational decision maker would do. But at the, surf at the surface of it, aren't people oftentimes irrational and strikingly suboptimal, particularly when it comes to making judgments of other people, where we have all kinds of inappropriate stereotypes and prejudice that are running rampant. Um, so how do you reconcile a Bayesian approach that you're advocating with these kinds of irrationalities? Um, that's a great question. The way that I think about rationality is somewhat broader than a kind of statistical normative approach. Um, so Bayes' rule, being, uh, being Bayesian is optimal if you have unlimited cognitive resources. Um, but we don't have unlimited cognitive resources. Um, and in general, um, inference problems are intractable, like the, the model that we built for social structure learning uh, is intractable to solve optimally. Um, so right off the bat there, there's an indication that you, you can't get away with being a perfect Bayesian there. Um, there's just hard computational limits. Um, so the, the kind of broader perspective here is that people are computationally rational, or sometimes what people talk about in terms of resource rationality. And this is the idea that you have some limited set of resources and you're trying to do as well as you can given the limited resources. Um, and, um, and, and as a consequence, you're gonna use a number of approximations. Uh, and th this is actually a, a, another line of research that my lab has been pursuing for a number of years, uh, where we try to, think about the kinds of approximations that are computationally plausible, both from 
a computer science perspective. So these are approximations that have actually been used um, in machine learning and statistics, for example, um, and also psychologically plausible. So we think that these are these are algorithms that might actually be run in the brain. Um, and, and from those approximations, we try to derive implications for deviations from ideal Bayesian computation. Uh, and and the interesting thing there is that you often get various kinds of violations of rationality. Um, so we we can we can reproduce a number of the the biases that people uh, show experimentally, but it's a little bit misleading to characterize those as kind of irrational hacks because they're the, the whole computational framework that that we're advocating here is that these are actually rational solutions to approximate computation. Good. So, so is there a sense in which you're arguing that they're meta-rational, that given the fact that we have to compute with uh, limited bounded resources, there's a sense in which we're doing the best we can by being stereotyping, by our prejudices, et cetera? Yeah, so we have to be a little bit careful when we say that people are meta-rational because um, there's one version of that idea that is totally implausible. So um, you might imagine a machine that thinks of all the possible approximately rational solutions, looks through that catalog and tries to figure out which of them gets closest to the optimal solution and then picks that one, right? That's kind of an idealized meta-rational decision maker, but of course, that totally defeats the purpose of being approximately rational, right? Or, or, or resource rational, uh, because that takes even more computational resources and of course presupposes access to the ideal rational output. Um, so, so it's uh, of critical importance that whatever hypothesis you would propose for um, approximate rationality, um, it does not require uh, access to some kind of computational oracle. Um, so, so in our modeling, we've we've tried to um, develop algorithms that um, have some provable guarantees um, in the limit. Let's say so. For example, you could approximate Bayes' rule with a set of samples. Uh, this is sometimes called a Monte Carlo approximation. And if you have enough samples, then in the limit, you'll you'll get a perfect approximation. Um, but we think that people are not um, taking an infinite number of samples. And, and when you take a small number of samples, that produces a number of probabilistic reasoning biases that have been observed experimentally. Now, there's a further question, which is, do people somehow optimize the number of samples under different uh, circumstances? And there is some evidence for something like that, but it, it um, still raises the, the question of, um, how much act information do people have access to when they do this um, kind of meta-rational optimization? So, so you, you, we always have to kind of dial it back and say that the, the problem they're solving can't be more complicated than the, than the, the idealized problem that we started with. All right. All right. Cool. Great. So popping up a level, are there any other insights that your modeling might provide for how we as an entire society could go about correcting some of the problems that people often show in terms of thinking about others? Uh, we have biases in favor 
of our own in-group rather than other out-groups. We have prejudices, we have false consensus. So would you have any recommendations for us, maybe with uh, having a sample in some ways versus other ways to help us get around some of our cognitive limitations to um, think more helpfully about others? Yeah. Um, so in, in theory, at least, knowing the computational process by which people update information about groups of people um, would be a really powerful tool for debiasing because then you could design um, information campaigns that would give people um, the information that they would, you know, the, the optimally selected information that would update their beliefs in a particular way. Um, now, one response to this is that people are remarkably resilient in the face of disconfirming information. They don't like changing their beliefs very much. And, and there's, a, there's a big open question about why that is. Um, so some people have proposed a kind of motivated cognition explanation and say that um, that people don't, people don't want to change their beliefs. They want to believe certain things, and so they, they will believe those things. Um, the kinds of models that I've been talking about here fall into a different class of explanation where the, um, the idea is that the reason we don't like to update our beliefs or that we don't update our beliefs uh, is that, at least in part, because uh, we have a statistical model that's flexible enough to um, create exceptions uh, when we get disconfirming information without altering the core structure of our beliefs. Um, so any kind of intervention would have to take that into account. Um, so one of the things we've been exploring um, via simulation and then soon via experiment is uh, um, parametric variations in the amount and quality of information that you give people about a counter-stereotypical um, counter agent, um, how does that, that change their beliefs about the group and seeing whether we can kind of fine tune um, the, those exemplars uh, to optimally update um, beliefs about that group. Great, neat, okay. Um, well, th thank you um, for changing some of uh, my auxiliary, maybe even core beliefs today. Mm -hmm. um, it's been wonderful talking with you. I wanted to also thank you for the amazing amount of excellent research that you've produced over the years and for speaking with us today. Thanks so much, Rob.